Hey everyone, happy new year, January 1st, 2021. Um, this is Steven, uh, your regular DM, and today just playing the host. I wanted to remind you that uh, the Faith Forge Academy is affiliated with Dice Envy, so if you like some click clacks, go to diceenvy.com and use the code Forge Academy uh, with no spaces and get 10% off your order. Um, we also have a Patreon where you can have access to some behind the scenes stuff, um, access to our Patreon only Discord channel and some other stuff, short stories, character journals, etc. Um, you can join that at patreon.com slash Academy. I want to give you a heads up. Today's episode is a little different than what we normally do, though we have done a couple things like this in the past. In the past. Uh, we are talking about Black Lives Matters um, because Black Lives Matter. And in spite of the media and social media and the movement kind of fading off of the mainstream, uh, we wanted to highlight that. Um, so I hope you take the time and listen. We have some really, really great guests with some really important things to say. Uh, so I hope you, I hope you listen and learn something new. Hey everybody, welcome to Faith Forge Academy. Um, I'm Steven, normally your Dungeon Master, but today I'm just going to play the role of host. Um, we are joined by a few special guests, and this is Chris's first full podcast as an official member of the Faith Forge Academy. Ooh, it's me, hello. <laughs> um, we've also got B, who you may remember as uh, Relvan Dearmar. Say hi, B. Hello, hello. I'm not joining today as a ghost person. <laughs> Oh, I am. Are you always a ghost person? Always. Cool, cool. So you're just joining in your natural <laughs> state. I'm just here, yeah. Okay, I think my natural state is just like a burning sun at all times. I love it. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. love that. Uh, so hey, what's up? Um, we also have uh, Gabe, who you may remember as Desodia, our favorite dryad. Hello, it is good to be back. Yeah, I'm Gabe. I do all kinds of stuff. Wait, Desodia? You know what? I'm glad you're just now hearing that. Like yes. the Yu-Gi-Oh um, card? <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. Also, uh, uh, you know what, just because uh, B always talks about me giving a hard time and it's always actually B. B, I don't know what other states suns can be other than burning. I just, I just wanted to... Oh my god, they can be extinguished. Then it's no longer a sun. It is... Okay. <laughs> is it the ghost of a sun? Because then you can hang out with me. Yes, Chris. Thank you. I think at that point it becomes a black hole, right? I yep. think it's a black hole, but I don't know how space works. 
So I like the idea. <laughs> well, it seems to be going on behind you. So space. maybe turn around. Yeah, your space literally is your background. <laughs> you play Burn Bright all the time. I don't know. Space magic. I can make that up where I can be a burning sun and I can be something else like a plasma sun, a plasma ghost sun. Here for it. There are many states of my being, Gabe. Thank you for observing. And we also have with us Sefi, <laughs> <laughs> who you will recognize as Miranda Lean. Hi, everybody. I'm an evil being that doesn't subsist on coffee and just runs off the sunshine inside of her body. <laughs> I'm very chipper and hyperactive this morning. Beautiful. I love it. Well, all y'all, thank you for, for being here. Um, we are doing a little conversation today um, about Black Lives Matters. It has been, uh, if you if you missed it, I guess, um, 2020 as a whole, congratulations, because it was a real wild year. But a major thing that happened was um, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which didn't start this year, it has a, a much longer history, but gained a ton of momentum because of um, the murder of George Floyd uh, and then Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. And, and that combined with the history of oppression of black folks in our country um, really sparked, sparked a global movement. It wasn't just in the U.S. It spanned across Europe, Canada, and all, and all over the place. There were p- protests everywhere. But as the year has gone on, the media coverage of those protests, which haven't stopped, um, has died down significantly. The social media coverage of, of the Black Lives Matters movement has died down significantly. Politicians have stopped talking about it on the whole. And... For the most part, it seems like the world just wants to go back to the way it was before. And so uh, we have these four wonderful guests here to kind of talk about that. What have y'all seen? And and I guess I should preface, um, I am the only white person on this podcast right now. So the four of them are bringing their experience as black folks who have seen and experienced this, this movement in this 2020 and bring their life experience to kind of share why this matters and why this can't, this can't die. This, this movement can't, can't just be shut in the back in a closet somewhere where no one talks about it ever again. It has to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. So with that, I'm just going to open it up to y'all and I'm, I'm going to sit back and let y'all have a conversation. Round of applause for our token Caucasian. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something I'm going to start with because reasonably so, a lot of this stuff is going to be talking about the stuff that is not pleasant or it's hard or frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I am thankful for is that as this stuff was gaining momentum, I now have more people in my corner that don't look like me than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. Um, because, mm-hmm. like, sometimes going out and looking for the people that want to support you that are not black or brown can be harder than you think uh, because of tokenism or people taking advantage or like thinking that you have people that care about you and they only care to an extent or they don't want, they, they want you to hang out with their white friends, but they don't necessarily want to hang out with you and your black friends. Um, and I'm a lot, a lot more thankful for like the white and Asian and Hispanic people that have reached out to me knowing that this chaos exists and that it's prevalent and are aware of their own ignorance because it also means like on the days that I don't have the energy to stand up for myself, other people are more often now. The thing I will also say to that is that um, this is sort of a pessimist statement, but also a positive one, I guess, because I was honestly surprised that didn't die out 
instantaneously, that the outpouring of support kept coming. Yes, media coverage of it has slowed down. Protests are still happening um, everywhere right now. But there is a media blackout. There has been for several months. um, And social media coverage is sort of fading as we get into the winter and the holidays and stuff like that. But I was just... The fact that it didn't lose momentum for months and months and months, because we've been through, we've seen this happen before. Black Lives Matter has been around for a long time. These issues have existed for centuries at this point. Um, Like we've seen the support come and go, and we've seen people virtue signal and say that they support us, and then they don't actually do it. But something about this time period with all that's happening with COVID, And the fact that people, for the large part, are avoiding public space. They are maybe going to work and that's it and going grocery shopping. And they still found time to kill us, specifically, more than once. So it's, I think that that was a large influence of, like, people actually waking up and realizing, you know, this is actually a problem. It's not just a bunch of Black folks saying, well, we're getting murdered, which should be enough, but... It's irritating. Right, though. It's interesting that you bring up the, you know, the combination of the movement and the pandemic, because I, I, I don't think it's arguable that that there were a lot of people this year who, quote unquote, had nothing Mm -hmm. better to do. And I feel like as unfortunate as the circumstances are, it really provided a, a much more focused lens for the movement in 2020 that wasn't there before because we were we were consuming media like food and water this year because we couldn't leave our houses and be with our friends and and engage in kind of the the normal distractions that we typically mm-hmm. would have been um so it's like a double edged sword because on the one hand there's all this focus and all this attention on what's happening in social media and in the news but at the same time uh there's a lot of restriction in movement it's very hard for especially a lot of people in um you know bimpok spaces to mobilize and protest outside of their homes because of the inherent risks because they don't have a fallback plan if they get sick or you know they you know so it's just it's fascinating to think about the juxtaposition of these two circumstances at the same time oh yeah i mean this time of year is what i think enabled the coverage to take such a spotlight on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, For what it's worth, I remember when I got to go to the first protest this year, it was the first time that I had actually been outside in a group of people basically all year. And it was the most strange experience, but everybody was wonderful, respectful. They distanced, they had masks, they were responsible organizers. However, the coverage of it was all still groups of people go out to protest breaking COVID laws. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Regardless, it was all still framed in this negative light, no matter the efforts that we've been trying to make. And no matter what, it was always protesters cause riots, blah, blah, blah. And the actuality of it is that we have hard evidence showing that many of the people that caused those problems were police officers. Mm -hmm. Like, That whole argument, that's like, that's, from my perspective, that's a very American Mm -hmm. experience. um, Because we have protest, but if it turns violent, it's usually only Mm -hmm. in Quebec. Um, Mm -hmm. They have a slightly different socioeconomical views on racism than the rest of Canada, but we'll talk mm-hmm. about that later. Well, actually, so that brings up a good point. Can we talk about, like, where we're all from? Mm-hmm. I think that's probably sure. smart because we all have very different yeah. perspectives. Yeah. Gabe, you want to go first? I don't sure. want the pressure so, of that. No, it's fine. So I, I live I live <laughs> in the U.S. I live more East Coast U.S. over near Pennsylvania. 
Um, Pennsylvania is an interesting place because West Pennsylvania is very city, uh, urban. <coughs> Eastern is more suburban, um, which can suburban and farming, which can sometimes play into the opposite because, uh, I learned when I was like 18 and 19 from my parents that there is like a not necessarily small clan presence in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So like oftentimes like, well, yeah, it's, and it's an interesting thing. Like I love, I love Pennsylvania having a lot of farmland, but a lot of farmland also can be bad. And it's like, I don't travel out there by myself. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've like, <laughs> I've had conversations with people who were like in the clan, like at some point in their life. <laughs> it's weird. Which I think, I think that's, that's one of the things that's so crazy to me. Um, that that there's especially from so i grew up um in a white conservative evangelical world um in north orange county california which is mm-hmm. a hotbed of racism and mm-hmm. um rich white folks um and so but in our schools we were taught i was taught like oh civil rights like we we solved all this like we're good racism's gone you don't have to worry about like the clan's not a thing and, and I think so, so from my perspective, um, like hearing, hearing a sentence like that, I think, I think a lot of, a lot of white folks will be like, wait, that's still real. Yeah. A lot of white folks are misguided by the way that history and culture are taught in schools and also by what their legacies are, um, within the communities and also not for anything. There's also the tendency of, so I talk about this a lot professionally um, because not a lot of people know this, but I am a sensitivity consultant professionally. I've worked with several different companies. Um, I've been I've worked from everything from Random House to Idelity. Um, so like whiteness as a concept is not a race in and of itself. It is a standard of values and standards of appearances and behavior that anyone can align with as long as they fit these parameters. It doesn't actually matter what your racial or ethnic background is as long as you hit this type of skin color, this type of behavior, this type of XYZ, um, which is why one of those things that comes in with there is the assumption of wealth or status, which is why you see a lot of poor white folks identifying with conservative politics that may not like actually benefit them because they identify with that concept of whiteness, even if they don't fit that part. So it's complicated. And so, Steffi, where are you from? Oh, right. Like, like generally, it was just generally. Um, I'm from Massachusetts, um, which <laughs> is, in a lot of ways, louds itself as being one of the most, you know, progressive areas in the country alongside California and potentially New York City. Um, that's a lie. I will say that the further north you get and the further east you get, the more the racism becomes an undercurrent. We have a lot of problems with people who are black getting housing, selling houses, stuff like that. And we have the same issues with our police department that many others, other places do. Um, during the protests, from personal experience going to protests, I have seen the BPD in Boston Police Department um, completely obliterate people that were just standing there, like not even five feet away from me. I've seen people put in illegal chokeholds. I've seen... A lot of horrible things. And um, Boston is no better. Uh, Massachusetts is no better than areas in the South. Just the racism and how it's portrayed is different. Because there's the assumption that it doesn't exist here. And it really, really, really does. 
So speaking of the South, that's where I'm from. Um, I grew up in Texas, lived in Tennessee for mm. about eight years and actually was there at the beginning of the pandemic and just shifted mm. back to Texas. So uh, racism here, there, it, undercurrent mm. isn't even, that's not a concept here. It is loud and proud down here and it's extremely challenging because it makes you, I mean, this is not, I'm sure there are many people that are going to hear this that can identify with this, but it's almost terrifying to just leave your house because it's not my application might be denied. It's literally, I might get run mm. off the road today. You know, it's, it's, it gets violent and I know it does all over the country, all over the world. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating how blatant it is down here and people aren't because it's so reinforced. Like the belief system is rewarded if you are proud about this particular kind of set of beliefs versus other places where it's a little bit more uh, socially expected to keep things under the radar or kind of talk things under the rug. My mom's from Tennessee and like we haven't gone back to see family in Tennessee in a long time. Mm. It's gnarly. Yeah. yeah. Dang. Um, well, I guess that leaves me. Um, I am the resident Canadian here and I think I might have like the most like distant background um so i am a uh, jamaican canadian uh but i grew up through foster care so i have lived in various parts of canada i think i went through five or six different families and let's be real the only people who adopt kids uh are mm -hmm. white people so i've lived with a variety of them um in different parts of canada so i am primarily going to be speaking from a perspective in ontario but like I've done a lot of research, I knew a lot of folks in Quebec. Um, and then we have uh, Calgary, which is like the shit show or Alberta, excuse me, the shit show of Canada. We like to call that our America of Canada. Um, <laughs> they have. Oh, I mean, fair, but ouch. I can't <laughs> even say ouch anymore. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, fine. It's like that's not the it's not a good place to be for anybody, yeah. black people or any of like anybody, uh, unless you're white and own a truck. God. Well, at least the truck thing's consistent throughout throughout countries. It really is, yeah. Truck owners and racism tend to go hand in hand, don't they? I don't get it. It's because of the <laughs> it's because of the interplay of toxic masculinity and racism, um, of which there is a lot of crossover in these communities. So I do yeah. get it then. Mm -hmm. So before I, I have a question for all of you because this is I have a weird story that I I like bringing up um, before all of this got the traction that we've seen recently. What is one of the just weirdest moments you've had with someone that wasn't black in relation to like racism and awareness of such weird or weird yeah. or painful, probably weird because if we talked about painful, we'd have a never ending list. Okay. And it's, Fair. and I, I say that in the sense of like, some people have legitimate ignorance of these things and, like, it's not even necessarily all fault, because, like, Stephen was talking about being raised to believe that this stuff isn't a problem. Um, I can I can do one that's both weird and painful. That's fair. That's a brand. So I'm a LARPer, which means that I do live action role play. Um, the LARP scene is heavily inundated with racism, which crosses over <laughs> into various nerd scenes because, you know, there is a certain amount of money investment that goes into a lot of geeky hobbies. Um, and often the people of those backgrounds are, you know, white and affluent. Um, LARP is about an intensified version of that because LARPing can be expensive if you're not good at sewing or putting things together yourself. So I NPC'd for a game, which I will not name. And that means that I was on the game side. We were running content for people who played to play the game. 
And I had what was called a face role, which means I had a name character that I would appear as periodically and that I would go out and interact with folks. And um, I was given this character with the expectation that you would die. I knew that from the beginning. It was fine. I was all prepared for that. Um, and then I took a break from LARPing and I got contacted by one of the GMs being like, can you record a message, like a final goodbye from this character and we'll play it during game. And I was like, sure. I thought that was the end of it. Um, a few weeks later, I get a message from the GM with a photo. And um, apparently that was not the end of it because they made a mod, a field fight, um, which is basically the entire game like crew and the cast and everyone who is playing fighting on one big battle. And the onus of the battle was this character carrying around an effigy of my character's head painted brown with a wig that matched the one that I was wearing. Um, so they made a lynching effigy of me as this character um, and uh, sent it to me like it was fine, all good, whatever. And I freaked the fuck out. I just I tore into them online. I tore into them everywhere. I lost a lot of friends from it. I there were there were this was before I had any sort of following anywhere. There were threads on Facebook of just like hate. I got doxxed from it like it was one of the weirdest surreal like encounters I've ever had with racism. And like, they had no clue. It was. <sighs> and so like the, the reason I asked this question is because we hear about a lot of extremes that people say, and then people only think it's extremes, but like, Oh, you sometimes... wanted something less extreme. Oh shit. No, no, no. I think, I think that's good. Cause I'm, I, <laughs> I know there's stuff that's example. more extreme, but I'm yeah. saying like some people might think, Oh, well like, like that's a subtle thing. Like there wasn't necessarily intent behind it, but it's, I want to bring up the point that like, the intent isn't like intent doesn't accept things from being terrible mm. and racist and hurtful. And it's like some people will make the make the attempt and then it's like that's enough. But like sometimes this you have to be aware of subtle things. Like and mm-hmm. or like literally be if you are ignorant of something, be aware of your own ignorance. Cause in that moment, that the end result should have been like, you know what, that's racist. We apologize. That won't happen again that should have been the like easier end result in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's why I wanted an example of something that's like to us, that's obviously bad, mm-hmm. but to, to some of those people, it was like, this, this isn't an issue. And that's what, that's the stuff that I don't feel like I hear enough people talk about. We hear about the stuff that's obviously an issue and the stuff that like people People are up in arms about, but if people weren't up in arms about that enough, that means so many of them were ignorant and chose that ignorance. Ignorance isn't an excuse. Um, Correct. Like you always, the thing about racism and the thing about, you know, being white or being of other races. um, Well, generally you always, no matter who you are, you're going to have to learn about racism that affects other people. Um, The issue with being white is that by default, if you fall into that paradigm of whiteness, you are conditioned to benefit from these things. And that's the default. It's very hard to, when you are in the forest constantly, it's hard to see the individual trees. So it's very hard to see these pieces that make up this, you know, beneficial structure of racism that like helps you when you've lived with it all your life. So that's why a lot of people get surprised with it. Um, 
it's like it makes sense but it's also not a an excuse to not learn these things yeah and racism can be as subtle as like can be everything from a lynching mob to someone touching your hair like if i had a dime for every time you don't love it when folks in the streets are like oh wow that is such a fascinating texture and then they don't ask they just touch (laughs) like i've never seen that before Or they get offended when you say no Uh that's my favorite thing when they ask if they can touch your hair or or ask you some offensive question you say no because black bodies to them are digestible female bodied that's just you are a commodity Mm -hmm. of interest you are not a person and that's what that behavior indicates and they just think oh i just want to touch your hair it's like would you say that to someone you don't know that isn't black? Would you? Mm, no. Why do you think that our bodies, the parts of our bodies are worth commentary or worth touching? And I don't care. Like people will be like, oh, you're wearing a weave. Oh, let me touch it. I've never touched one before. It's like, it's attached to that person's body. Do not touch people. Just don't. My favorite hairstyle to rock is an afro, but I have such anxiety about wearing that kind of like my natural hair in mm-hmm. public. Because it just, I find people's hands in my hair and it's the most distressing experience yeah. of going out in public. Well, and I think that speak, that kind of speaks back to the point that Gabe was making about intent versus impact, which has been a huge conversation this year because I've had these conversations where people, you know, kind of try to spin it like, oh, I just think it's beautiful. I wish I had hair like that. And I always want to be like, do you wish you had the life that came with having this kind yeah. of hair? Do you wish that you had to have the life experience that goes along with having naturally curly, kinky, coily, whatever you want to call it. Like, and then if you turn the conversation in that direction, they, they get extremely uncomfortable. And it's, it's hard to have conversations with people who haven't had this experience sometimes because, um, kind of like what Sethi was saying, the, the narrative has always been the narrative about racism, especially in the U S has been that it's, it's either our problem or it's an other problem. It's never been, this is our problem together. It's, this is black people's problems or this is not my problem as a white person. And it's never been like this conjoint issue where this is a problem we all have to deal with and solve together. Um, which I realize I'm taking a small point and making it big again, but no, that's, I, that's just kind of where my head's I mean, going. that happens, but like, so if it starts as a small point, it makes, it makes the point. The reason I brought that up is because I've, I've had this conversation before. I remember that uh, three years ago I had to teach uh, a coworker of mine at a retail store who was 17 about slavery did they finish school they were homeschooled Uh, oh and the parents never taught about slavery but then i also after having more conversation and it came up because it was knowing them and having all the conversations with them before it was the frustrating awareness that this person is not saying anything in an intentionally racist format and is literally just ignorant and it's not an excuse but it was almost more upsetting knowing that like they thought this was normal because it was like gabe what kind of black are you and i'm like i don't know (laughs) what that means and i'm they're like but like what what's your hair like where like where from africa are you i'm like i don't know and like it kept going and i'm like something's wrong here because you're not usually an ass so and then it was like well like isn't like wasn't like heritage passed down and i discovered that she had no conscious awareness that people could not pass down like traditions of their family because of being separated during slavery because her parents never taught her about that her parents never taught about slavery i also learned that her dad was a part of a militia and her parents didn't know she had a black friend so i stopped hanging out with that person very quickly but it was like this person is 17 
May I ask, sorry, really quickly, a militia in this context uh, is like a mobilization a, of white people? A, a <laughs> private military that arms themselves for a variety of reasons. But generally, it, so there is the right to form a militia, I think, in the Second Amendment. Don't quote me. But yeah, yeah, generally, it's very hard to form a militia when you are of a different race or a different background than the one that is considered the default because you're automatically seen as a danger. That is wild to yes. me. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, they had, like, a training camp in the woods and, like, guns and stuff, and I saw pictures because she knew how to use a gun and a knife because her dad made sure that they learned how to use assault rifles and stuff. So, and I'm um, like... There's also actually an interesting juxtaposition with this. Um, so everyone here... Well, obviously everyone here knows. Um, but the Black Panthers um, were vilified as being a militia, and that's often what happens when... Um, Groups of POC arm themselves um, is that they're seen as there. There's propaganda that goes around or arrests that are made, and like these people are targeted. Um, whereas you know we had a militia take over a government building somewhere out west, and um, all those people are still alive. So yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Like like during um, elections stuff. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. I guess so. My version to answer Gabe's story of um, just like not inherently bad experiences, but just weird experiences with like blatant ignorance. Um, in September of 2019, um, there were some pictures of our prime minister that came to light that he had done blackface. <sighs> there were multiple instances of his blackface. Um, I believe when Trudeau was in university, it was like 90s. Um, so not that long ago. However, he had gone to university in Quebec. Um, so this is where um, kind of this nuance is important to discuss. Um, Quebec basically being colonized by France, um, it has a very different social structure than the rest of Canada, um, which in the most simplest of terms, and like this isn't a, a, an absolute statement, but like they're a lot more racist than English-speaking Canada, mm-hmm. um, which is to say until 2018, they were actively doing blackface in their theater because they didn't see it as something that was bad. They just saw uh, Quebec possesses a lot of like anti-culture. Um, so if you tell them not to do something, they're going to do it. Uh, so there became this huge conversation of, is blackface really that bad? That seems like an American problem. We can't attribute their racisms to Canada. But at the end of the day, minstrels still existed. That was still a part of Canadian, like Canada history, Canadians history. Um, and like that kind of poorly replicated comedy at the expense of black people because they were just the butt of jokes. They weren't even viewed as people. And the fact that that was still repeated and not viewed as something racist, that is just a really good way for me to let you know that Canada has never, ever seen themselves as racist. So my every interaction with most people, even people of color, you know, it's not, we don't, they try not to tell ourselves that we're racist, um, despite regular conversations and regular interactions that are incredibly harmful. Um, so it starts literally at our government. Um, and when you, we have that amount of just like blatant ignorism or ignorance and denial, uh, it, it really affects the rest of the country. Like, well, it talks about the, the whole point of Black Lives Mattering. It's not just about the extreme stuff. Like all this, all this stuff that's just 
it was like it wasn't even shocking when I had to have that conversation or like I'm sure I'm sure for some of us it's upsetting but it's not shocking and I feel like that's that's one of the problems the stuff that like even even the stuff that is like almost mild stuff in comparison if you deal with that every week like once a week for a year of your life just a year that's horrible (laughs) that's where microaggressions come into play yeah Mm mm-hmm Because, like, leading up to every incident where you do say something, there's always minuscule events of racism that lead up and build up tension. And that's, you know, that often gets the viewpoint of Black people are just angry, particularly if you're a woman. People don't understand how these things build up and how they affect people. Like, just because you did a small racist incident doesn't mean that there's not a mile-long list of things that led up to the reaction that someone got. And it also doesn't mean that you did something that was okay. You know, it's... (sighs) There's just so many layers to race and racism and race relations that people are just unwilling to listen to when... Or, like, own up to. Like, this would be so much easier if people were willing to admit, you know, I'm raised within a racist paradigm, therefore I am racist, and therefore I have these beliefs, and now we're going to address them. It'd be so much more easy to address than the constant denial we get. Not to mention that, like, there is racism and prejudice um, of varying degrees throughout every race, um, though racism tends to have a power dynamic with it. When you are particularly black, as far as the racial totem pole goes, as far as viewpoints, you're at the bottom. You are at the bottom of the totem pole. So, like, other races do exhibit racist behaviors to black people. And the same thing can happen towards, like, with black people and others, but it's more of a prejudice that isn't actually reflected in political power. Like, this may get me in trouble for bringing up, but there is a lot of anti-black sentiment in the Asian community. Um, this is blatantly seen in Get Out. There's a reason there's one Asian character in that group of people that are taking over Black people's bodies. Um, and that's not to mean to say that every Asian person carries black, anti-Black sentiment. It's just something that's common and it's something we don't necessarily talk about. So, like, all of these layers of racism and stuff, like, you need to understand that, like, there is just a default of racism. It's that you have to work from to move forward. I live in a really big uh, Arab community and there was a lot of, uh, again, all the questions that like white people would ask me, uh, a lot of my Arab friends had to ask and it was like this, this learning and growing just because there was that disconnect mm-hmm. culturally between the two of us. Um, and it wasn't meant to be inherently bad. It was just like, oh, these questions suck. Let me ask you some questions that suck and we'll grow together. You Not know? to mention, yeah. I assume everyone here got the outreach when all this stuff happened that wasn't really outreach it was please explain to me that this isn't real and that this is fake <laughs> as a black person please tell me that so it's many not messages what's going on what does black lives matter mean can you please explain why are people violent at protest i think people shouldn't be violent i care more about a storefront than years. i do about the this? people that died mm-hmm. i actually didn't mm-hmm. get those messages but if i did it's because they were in my request and i didn't read them <laughs> I mean, I got them on Facebook. It was from a lot friends. of like. Oh, nah. Yeah, it was yeah, mostly it, Facebook. It wasn't even strangers. It was, it was friends. friends, people yeah. that reaching out to to be validated, to be yep. revalidated that they're not mm-hmm. bad people was Virtue the, was the biggest thing yep. that I got. Was, um, you know, I I, I want to make sure that you know that I care about you, but also like I'm on your side. Yes. I'm one of the good ones, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Like 
and it's hard to sometimes for me it's even hard to approach that conversation i've i ignored a lot of them i didn't engage mm-hmm. in a lot of them where maybe i should have but i ran out of energy i mm-hmm. ran out of bandwidth to be the like token black person that you consider to be safe and approachable i got tired of being the friend that you felt like is going to be the bridge for you to like make your entry into the rest of the black society or whatever it like it's hard um I would say every shade has its own struggles. Mm-hmm. Every shade of being black or being um, a person of color has its Correct. own struggles. For me personally, being multi-ethnic, um, my father's from Barbados, but there's a lot of Irish lineage there. My mother has a lot of Native American lineage. So it's like, I feel like I show up. I don't really look like any one subgroup. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm here. Um, and I feel like that has been a double-edged sword because it's but there is privilege there in being lighter skinned and not having to deal with some of the, um, some of the toxic behavior that you see enacted upon people of darker Mm -hmm. shades. However, it also means that people consider me to be like a safe space where they can say outlandish bullshit that they would never say to somebody of a darker shade. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I just ran out of energy for those conversations really early on this year. The problem with it is that, like, I am also multi-ethnic. I'm mixed race. Um, So the problem is, is that you get to be Hollywood's idea of what is safe and approachable Black, and that obviously affects cultural standards. Um, And, like, yeah, there is a total amount of privilege that comes with being light-skinned. But, like, there's also, like, so much bullshit that can come with it, too. Um, not that I'm saying that mm-hmm. it's worse than what people who are darker skin face, because obviously that's on another level. Um, but like the people that reach out are just so disingenuous. It's like they want reassurance from the people that this actually affects. And to that, all I had to say to them was Google is free. I am not. <laughs> Fuck you. Pay me. I charge for this on a daily basis. I charge gaming companies. I charge everyone. And like, I charge friends. I do not care. You want an explanation from me for anything, you can pay my fees. That's it. But no, speaking back to, uh, kind of referring back to the the shade thing, it's, that's something that's been a struggle because that's just another way to, to keep people of color pinned mm-hmm. down is to pit us against Absolutely. one another and to create situations in which one subgroup wins and one subgroup loses. And that keeps us unfocused on what we really need to be doing and what we really need to be thinking mm-hmm. about and talking about. I struggle with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, the, the, one of the formative examples of my life was I was a kid and I went to, I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood, went to a mostly white private school. Uh, but there were a handful of um, black girls in my class that, I can understand now from an adult perspective felt it was insular. Like they had this protective little pod going on. But as a kid, I didn't understand why I couldn't be a part of that pod. Uh, And one of the girls actually like cornered me uh, by myself one day and lashed out at me, um, basically saying that she hoped I didn't think that I was better than her because of my hair and because of the way that I looked. And it was, it was such a confusing, but, but informative experience for me. And I've carried that with me into adulthood because it's, it's hard to not be aware that there are some people that want to welcome you m- more into the community and pull you in deeper and be a part of this. And there are some people that feel like you don't deserve to be there because you haven't had it as hard as X or Y or Z. 
Um, and so that's been hard because I, you know, you want the conversation to be like, where we all deserve a seat. We all deserve to be here. We all deserve equal treatment. But even within the community, it's hard to get people on that page. I feel like I've been talking too much, but I want to add to that. Is that okay? Is that okay? Please. Cool. Yeah. And then I have a story to share. <laughs> so I think I get torn on this because, you know, I do understand that there is a different type of experience that goes into being dark skinned. Like the experience of being black is not a monolith. It's not universally the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and like someone like me where like I could go through life and just not say I'm black. I, I could, I could do that. That is something that my appearance would allow me. I look like every other race on the planet that's vaguely Brown. Um, but I make that choice because I know that people who are racist and who are, or who are on the fence about learning about this stuff are more likely to listen to someone light-skinned, as terrible as that is, and they're more likely to listen to someone that looks like me, and which means that I can be a mouthpiece for, you know, this whole sort of spectrum of issues. But at the same time, I understand why people wouldn't necessarily welcome me to some black spaces because of what I look like. Um, and yeah, it hurt for a while, but it's also like, I feel like it's important to recognize the reasons for that. And it's important to recognize, you know, the privilege that comes with being light skinned and also the privilege that comes with, you know, not necessarily having the same experiences. Um, so yeah, it hurts, but it's also like, I'm going to keep saying the same things that I'm doing. I'm still going to talk about my blackness and I'm still going to make sure that I do everything in my power to make things better for people who are darker than me, you know? Um, so I have a story that relates to colorism and formative experiences. Um, so again, growing up through, uh, in foster care, um, I think one of the first couple of families I was with, they were white, um, they were chill, but I was, I grew up in Toronto, um, very multicultural, multi-ethnic. Multi um, the schools I had gone to, you know, kind of much like Steffi had said, or uh, Chris, sorry, um, I immediately was with the groups of people that I look like. But as a young child, always surrounded by other people of color, I didn't recognize that as a distinction until I was moved to another family in a very small, small town of like 4,000 people where there were three black people, one Asian family, they were Korean and they were lovely, and one brown kid who did not stay very long. Five of us in the entirety of the city. And that was where I learned that I do not belong. Um, and I will never forget, I think I was seven or eight years old. And these kids were picking on me because I looked different. And I went back home to my family and I was like, I don't understand what's what's going on here. I know I physically don't look like you, but that has never been an issue until I've come to this town. What's going on? Um, and this poor white family did a terrible job of explaining what racism was to me. And that was just like, that fucked me at that point on. And like, it became a totem pole thing too, because I was the lighter of the blacks within the three black people in that entire town. I was the approachable one. I was the, the friendly one. I was never the angry one, despite you know, probably being a very angry child. Uh, and that's one of those experiences that has really stuck with me because that has impacted a lot of how I view things from that point on. Hmm. Gabe, do you have any stories to share on colorism? Um, kind of. I, I, I guess of the four of us, I am the darkest here. It's, it's been a lot less colorism and... 
it's been more about social interests, I guess. It was often the black kids apparently had certain interests and the white kids had certain interests. And if I had coinciding interests in both, I didn't end up in either groups. Mm. I I remember like thinking like it it's that weird moment of like I'm too black for the uh, white kids and too white for the black kids, mm-hmm. and it's like it's also a whole disparity of <laughs> racial identity that is linked to different interests that is that is linked to mm-hmm. such stupid things. Um, so like often I I've been very fortunate in the sense that um, my mom from Tennessee and my dad from Philadelphia definitely tried to integrate me into a variety of different people of race and culture so i'm fortunate enough that i don't really think i experienced much colorism growing up but it's it was very because pennsylvania is a very like largely white place it was instead of colorism it was just oftentimes that experience like be had of being like the black kid in a white area. My my high school was I've written down tokenism as yeah. well. We can talk about tokenism for mm-hmm. sure. My high school was super diverse. Um, but I remember going to a family reunion for an ex of mine, and I was the only black person. And um, like they were all looking at me, and then like I brought it up to my ex, and she got mad at me, saying like they just don't know you. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think that's it. Mm-hmm. And like it it was it was an interesting <laughs> moment of like it was it was in like a campground area so i had like no cell service and like i remembered what it's really fucked up i remember walking past a black family on our way in and then remembering where they were and i remembered like i realized that's a bad thing (laughs) i didn't know that like black family but i had remembered the pathway back to them if something went wrong here I felt more comfortable, like, considering that group of Black strangers than my partner that I came with who had downplayed my concerns. I mean, you might have been in the, the plot to get Yo, out. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I was just, like, the beginning of I'm a horror movie. Sure sounds like a yeah. horror movie. <clears throat> like, and I was like, I have no cell service. We are in the woods. I can, and, like, if, I was like, okay, what, what? I, I was thinking, what trees can I climb? Like, because there's, well, there's, it's just, it's a whole bunch of, like, very... Southern people with features that are sadly often tied to people who do not like me. And then, like, why are you looking at me instead of that plate of green beans? Like, I am not more interesting. And there's a lot of things that are way more interesting than green beans. I would say that you're one of them. But not to go against your point. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that gave me so much secondhand no, anxiety. I think that that, <laughs> right. Well, and I was going to say, I think that that really speaks to something that I think all of us can identify with, which is this in this ingrained like sense of always being on alert even when you're not conscious Mm -hmm. of it we talk about that sometimes in spaces that are about women um we don't i feel like i don't hear about it as much not that the conversations aren't happening but i don't hear about it as much in bimpok spaces and but there is this this thing that that white people get to do which is to never look over their shoulder you, there's so few people that I know personally, I'm not saying as a, as a whole general rule, but there are so pe- few people that I've heard of or know personally that have had to, as a, as a person of color, I keep a, a car key between my fingers when I'm at a gas station at night. If I'm at a gas station where I feel uncomfortable, I will call a friend on the phone to make sure that somebody is hearing my voice. If there's a person two pumps down, giving me a, a weird eye, you know? Um, and, and that's something that so many people are, 
are privileged to not even have to think about. It blows my mind um, that you had this experience. And I would argue that all of us have probably been in a similar situation, which is like, what's my escape plan? Who do I call? Who's on my speed dial? You know, can I get out of this situation safely if I had to? Um, and it's something mundane, like a picnic, you yeah. know, like it's, we shouldn't have to be on such high alert in such mundane situations, but we are. That wasn't even that long and ago. And people take that for granted. That was like four years ago. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, okay. So side note, I want to, I'm tired, I'm t- this bothers me. On the subject of Black Lives Matter, can we just take a moment to say that you don't have to make a counterpoint. <laughs> you could just say yes. The The, the mm-hmm. statement of for all lives matter to be a reasonable thing just say yes to black lives matter <laughs> right it's not an argument yes. it's simple mm-hmm. stuff. it is it is like black lives matter yes that's true <clears throat> and saying that and agreeing with that leads to the concept of all lives mattering but if mm. your counterpoint has if if that's like me saying i like soup well actually chowder is good too i didn't say it wasn't I never said yeah. it wasn't. There was there was no disparity of that. Just you can you can acknowledge both things can be true. And in fact, for the other thing to be true, the first one has to be. Exactly. My argument has always been like, oh, so you agree? Yeah. I'm like, Black Lives Matter, and they're like, well, all lives matter. Oh, yes. okay. Well, so you agree? Black <laughs> Lives Matter. Perfect. We're on the same page. Like, well, no, actually, well then your statement is false. Right. Let's also add. Logic is hard, especially on the blue internet. Blue lives matter to that. <laughs> Blue lives uh, matter. Just and like I, I was just going to say that because yeah. blue lives are not a, it's not a life. It's a profession. Yeah, mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. You weren't born in that uniform. So you can chill the fuck out on that. That's made Sorry. its way over here too. And I want to throw yeah. up on mm-hmm. it. Um, and the other thing too, is that blue lives matter doesn't exist without black lives matter. It's literally just to say we're okay with people murdering black people. Also, there's a lot of racism, even inside of those forces. I had, oh, yeah. a, fa- I had a family member that was a state trooper in the South. And he loved what he did and he loved doing something good. And then he ended up leaving because like they asked him to do something that he didn't want to do. And there was a there was a conversation of, well, maybe if you need something, we'll be late one day. And he left. Oh, (laughs) my God. Yeah. And it's 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 terrible because it's like I I feel like a lot of people or at least too many have a misconception that black people don't want to trust the police. I want to. It's not about I would it's not that. about what I want though. I want to be able to be I feel unsafe somewhere and I can reasonably pick up this phone and call someone and know that I'm not going to die. I want to be like, "Hey, I am getting pulled over for something that I don't know why. This person's going to help me figure out whatever the problem was. If my light was out, awesome." That's what I want. It is not about me not wanting to trust people. Because if it was want, the world would be much happier. We'd probably have a whole lot less crime. There'd probably be a whole lot less racial injustice. But want is not enough, and it never has been. There's a joke in Ontario where we don't have enough uh, Bimbok folks in the police force. And it's always the idea, like, why don't they apply? Why don't they want to join? And, like, I wonder... I, like we have the people, it's they just do not want to be a part of that organization because of like the brutality that they've, like they have faced throughout their lives consistently, and it's just like why can't we get more of them in the police force? You I can see wonder. people in the military talk about their frustrations with the police force and a lack of like training and mm-hmm. comprehension and understanding, and if the people who are literally defending a country 
have issues with people defending cities. It takes longer to become a cosmetologist than it does to become a cop. <laughs> In this country, standardly. God damn. I call a cosmetologist. Yo, someone's gals me problems. Grab the, someone's in my grab, house, man. Grab the shears. <laughs> Bring your brushes. <laughs> <laughs> grab the scissors. Yeah, grab Get your the scissors. Get the Spray in their eyes. All you got. But no, I think that that also kind of ties into the the uptick in attention that was paid to, you know, the concept of defunding police this mm-hmm. year. And that's not that's also not a new concept, no. just like Black Lives Matter isn't a new concept. But it became a huge part of the conversation this year because it's not even a secret that the police are as a, as an organization, as a force, are overextended and are given responsibilities that they don't. They're not trained for. Um, as a former mental health therapist, I can tell you that my interactions with police officers when I've been on crisis calls has been abysmal because they, they don't know what they're doing. They weren't trained for this kind of situation. That's why you see so many cases of people that are having mental health issues that need help then being assaulted or murdered because that's what the police were trained to mm-hmm. do. Um, and they And because of their place... In our society, they're allowed to overstep people who are far more qualified to deal with issues of mental health crisis, homelessness, like all of these things that don't need to fall under police umbrellas that do. Um, but instead of us, instead of that being the conversation, the the terminology and the movement was weaponized back against us, saying that we just want anarchy. Black people, like Gabe said, just don't want to trust, don't want to trust the cops. It's not that we don't want them around. We want them to do what their job is. And let other people in on this. It needs to be collaborative instead of just cops going to deal with everything. I kind of disagree. Because we've seen how that happens. Um, I agree for the most part, like, with, you know, we need to restructure what the police force is and what, who goes to what section. Like, we need mental health therapists to go to be trained for crisis situations and have them deal with it because that would result in less death. Um, Mm. I, as a whole, do not like the structure of the police. And I do think that when I say defund the police, I don't just mean money. I mean, restructuring them. I mean, taking them, doing training, building something entirely new because Mm -hmm. the police as a whole, the brotherhood of police forces, the fraternity of it is so interwoven with white supremacy and racism. And like, even when you are a Brown or an indigenous or otherwise person that goes into these police forces, you basically have to be indoctrinated to it and you have to be silent about it. Otherwise, stuff like what happened with Gabe's relative happens. It's, I'm not someone, and I know that this is not popular, but I'm not someone who thinks that the police force as is can be redeemed. I'm someone who thinks that it needs to be completely redone from the ground up. I deadass assume that I agree. Steffi's opinion. Like, thought that was the norm nowadays. When we say defund, we do mean dismantle. Yeah, that's true. Often, yeah. There's, and I, I think norm. I want to I want to speak to our white listeners as someone who is is white. Um, I hope y'all are hearing hearing what's being said because I know I used to operate out of a place place of fear for change because these systems benefit me. Like the structure of the police system right now makes my life real easy. Um, I can go anywhere, do anything. I don't have any of this fear. But what I want y'all to hear is that 
there are millions of people in this country who do not experience that same thing, who live in fear of this police force. And so when when you hear defund the police, yeah, yeah, change is a little bit scary, but but it's not more scary than than the fear of being murdered by people who are sworn to protect. Right. And so so when you hear people say defund the police, take a second and think about what what these folks here are saying, um, because just because it benefits you, it's it's not a good system. It's a deeply harmful system. And just because it protects you doesn't make it right. Just because laws protect you don't make them just. That, that might um, be why they say it, though, Stephen. It might, I mean, it might be why people react like oh, that. It, They're it, like, well, you well, know it what? Totally it's, is. It, it might make them safer, but it's going to reduce my safety. Well, right, and, that's where the but lie that's, is. And that's, that's where the lie is, exactly. It, it will benefit everyone, but but that fear... And that's why that's why I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to reach out to you white folks that are listening to our podcast um, and say like it, it is a lie that that where that fear is coming from because because you can't have a whole healthy society when one part is in danger and one one part benefits from that danger. So okay, something that's really interesting is also if we look at like the riots and protests, well, not even riot the protests that happened, the number of like resources that police ran out of like tear gas and then they had to refill on but how often were those things actually used beforehand and some oh my god y'all used expired tear gas yeah yeah like i was reading up on that so for like, a while so like the other thing um the the fact that there was expired tear gas means that it didn't didn't need that much in the damn first place but that's a whole separate conversation um if you look at the civil rights movement and how much like how armed the police force were then and how they were reacting then, how they were like proceeding, how they were acting then. And then you look at the protests now. I would like someone, it's it's a pretty much impossible task or, or near impossible to find representation of the police force doing something, being as armed as they were from the civil rights movement to now and like find it on that scale. And both times, it was about racial injustices. Both times that they were in that large of a force and they were acting in such a way were doing racial injustices. And the idea that we have moved past it from the past, but it was recreated this year with more arms. And I'd say the biggest difference is that there was more racial diversity there. And that may have involved less people dying, but there were still a lot of people that died. There were still a lot of people that were injured and there were a lot more officers. They, and and there's a difference between a past where that is a racial norm of a not so distant time to now where that's a choice that was accepted. And like there are there there are obviously plenty of officers that it it's not about wanting to do this but it's there's there's hundreds of choices to make i'm not going to tell anyone what choice they should make but the choices that you make do have an end result if the biggest there should not have been so much of a reflection of protests during the civil rights movement to protests in this year and if you can find pictures that are identical, but instead of using hoses, they're using rubber bullets and tear gas. 
Yeah. And that's what I, I'm, <clears throat> you know, when I'm thinking about what defunding the police means, I don't, I certainly don't think that we should keep the institution as it is and then just add more, you know, social workers, because that, that's not going to work. But what it is, is we need to reconceptualize what it even, what it even means, what function they serve in society. I, I feel like there are countries in this, on this planet where police officers, constables, whatever you want to call them, whatever the terminology is in that country, they just actually keep the peace. They Folks just in the exist UK? to be I a resource in the event of an emergency. They're not a mini militia that's like government sanctioned. There's no consistency across the board from city to city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's more what I'm, you know, kind of speaking to what Gabe is saying about how the differences between the civil rights movement of the 60s and now is that there isn't one because for so long, police have been seen as this like tiny army that is controlled by whatever governor or whatever mayor or who, you know. So it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not even, that's not even a counterpoint. I'm just echoing Honestly, kind of that they don't even sentiment. always listen to the governor or the mayor. They listen to their captain. The, mm-hmm. I think our forces, like in Canada, the, um, like the Canadian Royal Mounties, I think they were formed um, similarly the way your forces were, were kind of assembled in the sense that um, when, uh, you know, we colonized Canada, uh, there was... The folks that already lived here. So we had to create a police force to basically remove them, mm-hmm. um, like all of the indigenous folks who was this land that we're living on. Um, and that's why we have a police force is to harass and remove people that don't serve the interest of the government. And like, that's so bullshit. And then like over time, that has just developed to serving the interests of basically white men. Um, but like, that's like that quiet undercurrent and, you know, it's not serve and protect people. It's serve and protect physical interests. Yeah. Like the police force in the United States has not always existed. Like, let's be completely clear about that. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that the police force grew out of the slave catching industry. Um, and like, that's just a point of fact. That's part of our country's history that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And just the thing about like, other countries like the UK, one, gun violence is way less in the UK because of the gun laws. Um, even, like, play, I think Iceland also has a similar style of police force. Like, there's there's a lot of things that the United States has, like, can see visible examples of, but because the United States is also the greatest country in the world, which it is not, we are sort of just like, we do things the best no matter what it is, even if that's a fallacy. Like, and the police force is one of the worst things that we do. We do self-confidence the best. Yeah. Also, police forces don't tend to listen to governors because, like, there was, I think, I'm so bad with which, keeping track of which state, which fuckery comes from. But there was, there's a state that they were introducing legislation to limit police force power. And the governor signed it in and the entire fraternity of police in the state wrote this really nasty letter being like, you can't do this, blah, blah, blah. I heard about that. They really want to keep the power to kill whoever they want indiscriminately. We got very, very similar vibes Um, at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement in the States. And by beginning, I mean beginning of this year. um, Gosh, there's a name that is really important for me to get right. Um, There was uh, uh, like a wellness check, um, which police are allowed to do here um, on the in a building, like an apartment building on the 24th floor, um, where I think she was like a black indigenous woman, uh, Regis Korshinsky Paquette. um, And she was just point blank murdered by a police officer. She was pushed off the balcony of the 24th floor. 
and protests, like uh, organizations, uh, letters to parliament. None of it was able to make a change because the police force more or less rallied around each other and they were like, nah, we, we did this and it was the right call. You know, she seemed like she was going to freak out. So therefore, pushing a woman out of a 24th story building was the correct solution. And there was nothing as people that we can do to fight that. We cannot stop that kind of power. And it just makes you feel so helpless. Well, and I think that's one of the importance of like the defund conversation, because in what has happened traditionally is, oh, we as a police force made a mistake. We need reform. And so we need more resources. So we need more money. So we grow our power and our structure doesn't change. We need more guns to help us shoot people less. Yeah. I mean, obviously. That makes sense. Mm hmm. Uh, no, and it's 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 interesting, and I think it's very valid that you point out that sometimes policies or the powers that be aren't enough to to enforce what is supposed to be happening. Um, this year, there's been a huge conversation and a huge push for body cam footage, for body cams to be on at all times. And literally um, five days before we recorded this, someone was shot and murdered, and there's no answers because they didn't have their body cam on. And anytime that happens. Um, the response is just like, oh, well, we forgot to turn it on. Well, if that happens. I guess we'll never know. And and so it's just like you even putting the policies in place, if there aren't people in those spaces enacting that change actively and being willing to fight the status quo, what what are we doing then? What, what are we going to do? Well, and there was there was even that thing in the news. I think I think it was a Boston thing recently where there was the the body cam footage of a cop bragging about hitting yep. people with his I believe car. That was yeah. and then and then and then instead of instead of any cop being like like that's that's bad like you shouldn't have done that they go your body can't the body yeah, can he walked away he walked away and came back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there were no consequences no 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 but that's the thing about body cam stuff there's Over not here, uh, a month ago, we had, I promise it's related, we had a, a police who uh, pulled over a man. Um, he was a chief of his indigenous community, pulled him out of his car with no reason, beat the shit out of him, all while it was being filmed. Um, and of course, the man complained after, you know, he was able to go home and do the best that he could. Um, but there was no consequences. So we're at a place where even if we have the footage, like, again, the forces have this power where they can be like, uh, you know, I think it's, he, 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 he said no, you know, at least once. Therefore, I had the right to beat the shit out of this man. Um, like, it was an elderly, like, it's just, I, I cannot rationalize it. But, like, even with the things that we should be able to actively stop with the footage, with, like... And we're not. Um, I mean, part of why the Black Lives Matter movement was able to get so much traction this year, in addition to the pandemic, was because we had the footage of it, too. Um, Otherwise, like, nobody believes you when we're like, so-and-so was murdered by a police officer. And they're like, nah, I didn't see it. Therefore, it didn't happen. We have so much more footage, like, this year of all of these brutalities that have been happening. And it's still not enough. Well, to to that point... um how much of that footage is from people as opposed to body cams? That's true. Like, because people are watching and, and because nobody like the, the distrust is growing. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think from, from my view, that's, that is one of the positive things in a weird way. Yeah. Um, but that it's, it's going from, it's starting to grow into larger culture of like, Hey, we, we should be questioning this stuff. 
is it going too slow? Absolutely. But at least there's that, that seed of like, maybe the system isn't as good as it should be. I think be. it's made a lot of people who like, if they saw something or like saw someone being stopped, instead of going and leaving, they'll like pull over to the side or they'll like stand around the corner and like, they'll just watch and film or record. And it's, it's, it seems like it's such a little thing, but like, it, it makes a world of a difference because if someone's already being injured or assaulted or something's happening to them, they can't pull out their phone. They can't say, hey, like, who's your witness? I was getting punched in the head. I don't know what's happening. And like, it's terrible that it's almost the best thing for whoever else is watching to not make their presence known. Because if they make their presence known, then it puts them in danger and or like if they make their presence known, it becomes something for whoever is doing the harassment or the issue to treat them as a problem. And it's... Ugh. Well, I was going to say, I think Sefi was the one earlier that mentioned the media blackout. But it's gotten to a point where we are all we have. As, as citizens, as people, yeah. we are the only ones that we can trust. And that's not always the case. But nobody is showing the footage. Nobody is talking about it in mainstream media. So the only access we have to these incidents a lot of times is cell phone footage, is people on the streets being like, people that are willing to risk their own safety and their own lives just to get the information out there. Um, And it's tragic that that's the point that we've come to, that we can't even trust media, because everybody's in somebody's pocket at this point. We can't what trust is your media. social coverage like over there? Damn. This is a repeated conversation that y'all have talked about. We're talking about, about okay. like, you know, the last few weeks have been no protests, no, you know, police brutality, none of that. It's all like hottest gifts of the season. Yeah. Okay. You know, what? what is so-and-so wearing? Um, CNN literally just got blown up. I think it was on Twitter because they posted something about the season's like the season's looks or the influences or, or something like that. And they had like a picture of, you know, the, the actress for that plays princess Diana in the crown. Mm-hmm. And they had all these like cultural touchstones about what uh, is going on right now. And then they had a stylized art uh, piece of artwork of um, George Floyd. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When they're talking about the style of the season, yeah. it's totally out of oof, context. It's just oof, like people that's aren't that yeah. taste. Exactly. The media, you can't trust the media to, to explain to us what's really happening and show it uh, as being as dire as it really is. The other thing too, is that there are cases of people who have recorded this footage getting arrested, trying to be charged or even outright murdered. Like Mm -hmm. it's so painfully obvious what's happening. And not to mention, like, it's not just them. It's anyone that has direct involvement with forming protests and stuff. Like how many Ferguson activists are dead now? Yeah. All of them. Honestly, ha, like that, 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 yeah, that's totally just a coincidence. Totally mm, a coincidence. Mm, murdered in their car, set on fire. <sighs> very normal. It's very normal. It's scary. Like it's you, you want, you want to have people with you often because going somewhere alone can be scary. Even just going to the store. Um, and you want to have someone that like oftentimes, like at least one person that doesn't look like you, um, you, it's, it's, fucked up that like i want to have someone with privilege with me that i trust Mm -hmm. because then if something goes wrong like i can rely on that person to do something or say something or be there and like with the protests happening one of the most frustrating things for me was like not even necessarily just because of 
before, like even like pandemic stuff, I didn't want I was I was actively scared to go protest as a black man. Like mm-hmm. I was scared as hell because I was like, if something goes wrong, I feel like I'm I'm going to like if I'm there that I'm going to be a problem from existing. And like I was like, I have glasses. If something hits me in the eye and then like glass hits me or someone like knocks me over and then I can't see and then I'm just lost. And I was like terrified. So when I would like see like some of my friends going out and doing this stuff, I like got legitimately emotional because I was like, these people are doing stuff that I was too scared to do. Horrible. Did any of you two get to go to any protests? Not since COVID started. I I was honestly, like Gabe, too afraid to go. Um, And the other thing, too, the concern with me is that I'm trans. um, And so the concern is that if I got arrested, it would not end well for me. Um, Mm -hmm. In Like, there's also the risk that I could die. But, like, even that, honestly, is less scary than the thought of being put in a cell with a bunch of men. So, like, I avoided it. I've been to protests before COVID, but I didn't go this time. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, like, like everybody's saying, I didn't feel safe. I, you know, participated in it as much as I was able to do online, but it was never lost on me that that never felt like enough. And it always, there's this weird sense of guilt. Like, like, if it's, if it's my quote unquote problem, then I should be the one out there in the streets. But at the same time, as someone that has immune system issues during COVID, not, you know, coupled with being a woman Mm -hmm. and being a woman of color. Those three things were enough to make me too afraid sometimes to even leave my house to go to, to go get groceries, mm-hmm. let alone to go out into a, a massive crowd where people are shooting at you. Yeah. It's, it's and and honestly, like this is I feel like a good point for me to and maybe all of it. I just am so grateful for all the people who went out there and and did all the legwork yeah. and and were willing to to risk their own safety on behalf of others because no one went out there <clears throat> just for themselves. Yeah. That's not, that would have not, it's, it was, I always have felt a, a very, a big sense of gratitude. Um, it doesn't stop being for scary. those that were willing. It doesn't. And like people, people went out there multiple days, like every day for a week and they may have no relation to it. They might, not have a best friend who's a person of color, whether they were white, Asian, Hispanic. There were people of all races marching and having mm-hmm. these moments and conversations and doing this stuff. And like, it, it's frustrating feeling like I'm not doing enough for myself sometimes, mm-hmm. but it's also like, mm-hmm. I don't have to do all the work myself. Mm-hmm. I guess I come from a, a bit of a place of privilege then because A, I come from a country where gun violence is nowhere near as prevalent. Like, I'm more likely to get stabbed. Mm. Um, and really, um, and then <laughs> even the risk of getting sick, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't have to worry about any of those consequences. Like, I don't really count as a vulnerable population when it comes to that because universal health care. Um, so, like, I had the privilege to be able to go out multiple times and protest and march and, you know, scream on the streets. Um, and, like, the worst thing that we had happen was we decided to occupy one of the main streets um, and the police just weren't cool with that. You know, they pushed us off the streets, but it wasn't violent um, because, I mean, I also come from a, a smaller city, um, but 
that's a little bit of just like what happens here. Um, and that doesn't say that it's not different. Toronto, like our biggest city, that's where most of the violence has been happening lately. I follow a lot of social media accounts um, who are constantly posting, constantly talking about what's happening there because none of our main news outlets even want to mention it. You know, because we don't have racism in Canada. So says our everybody in government, unless you are color, you are brown, especially if you're brown, you can talk about racism, but then we'll kick you out of parliament. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so it's the idea that like I I can have that privilege, but it is it is tenuous. I I thought of something recently that I talked with my mother about. And my mother is from like like the deep south of Tennessee. Uh, So she's she's had some experiences and something that never made sense to me when I was growing up and learning about racism is that oftentimes, like, some of the some of the most racist experiences I've had with people were people who were lower class and white, so they were oftentimes poor. And what never made sense to me is why is it that poor white people often hate poor Black people when it's a government that's keeping them poor? Because it's not usually Black people in government. <laughs> And it it made no mm-hmm. sense to me. And I've thought about this so often. I'm like, And I'll hear like, well, no, the problem we have is with the government and black people. And I'm like, all right, government I get. But your black neighbor is just existing and they probably are eating less than you are. I mean, that goes back to the concept of whiteness. White people, no matter what economical sphere they come from, want to identify with whiteness. And whiteness comes with the idea of affluence. And um, that's just a part of, you know, the tenets of what creates the concept of being white. It's the worst thing to, like, realize as a child. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there's also, you, if you go back in, in U.S. history, we talked about how um, the police forces was birthed from slave catching. Um, the slave catchers were lower class white folks that the upper class oh. intentionally put in power that's... to make that Damn. structure. Right. And so then so then that that perpetuates this throughout history. And then and then you also have this this socialism is a, is a favorite buzzword in conservative politics. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, you have a lot of um, poor white folks who see anything as a government handout that goes to any other group as socialism. And 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 they have created this what's the right way to say this um like self-belief um in this system that like we're poor too we deserve stuff and 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 there's and there's this intentional wedge driven between poor people of color and poor white folks to make it us versus them because then then that's the target versus the politicians. So it's it's all very intentionally structured. What? Crabs in a bucket. Um, not to mention the police are a socialist structure. Mm-hmm. Why is it? I was like, I don't, you know, people are so upset about socialism, but you know, we have public schools, yeah. y'all. Yeah. We have public sidewalks. And police and libraries. And I, I hate that like the weird middle ground of like not having that separation of like the poor people of color and poor white people is that like the... If the poor white kid who says they have had the black experience, but it's not the black experience. It's just the poor, not racist experience. That's all it is. You didn't grow up black. You just also grew up poor and not racist. That's all it is. And honestly, if they are making that statement, they are racist. (laughs) Well, and how tragic is it that they associate the poor experience with being black? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. They just that's an mm-hmm. automatic yeah. connotation in their mind and it's I grew up black, I grew up in the hood, I had to deal with this stuff. That's not what being no. black means. That is just a sad product of oftentimes a black experience. Mm-hmm. Have any of you seen the college humor skit um that is like it's like Raphael is one of the cast members, um, basically be like people asking him about like it's growing up poor and stuff, and he's like, I'm black, I'm not poor. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm black. I, 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 I I'm, I'm not poor though. Yeah. And like they just keep insisting. It's. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. It's accurate to real life. <laughs> Oftentimes, growing up, I feel like growing up black means growing up not knowing if you're mm-hmm. poor. I feel like even if you grow up like middle class and black, there's still the element of you're never going to escape racism. There, I will say that there is in some black circles this idea that gain enough wealth, you will eventually be on the top of the deck, and it's not true. And I think even a lot of people that do like get wealthier or gain generational wealth as black people, there's always that fragility to it. Like anyone can take it away at any given moment, depending on like what governmental structures are in place, how the people around you react. Like no matter how wealthy you become as a black person, you are still a black person and you are still going to be targeted. Right. They're not going to care how much you've got in your bank account when they stop you on a street corner. Or accuse you of stealing this car that you're about to get into that you paid for. Like, not everyone's like, going to be OJ. They're not going to care about that. Like, OJ, I don't know what OJ did to get out of being arrested as a dark-skinned black man. But he did it, and it's not going to happen for you. Like, <laughs> <sighs> Can't afford them lawyers. Can't afford a Kardashian, apparently. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and, the, and the juxtaposition of that is all those scenarios you just mentioned, they won't happen to me. Yeah. Like, no one's going to question what car I get into, regardless of whether I'm poor or not. One time, I had a, a the police called on me for domestic, uh, uh, domestic violence, more or less. Um, there was a bunch of screaming from the apartment, and when they came by, um, we had all been drinking. It was me and my two roommates, who were like six, four white men. Um, like, they're tall, I'm much shorter than them. Um, things were being broken, like glasses and like cups and everything, so the cops come in, um... I am very clearly the one who uh, needed help in this situation, um, but I was the one who was uh, pulled uh, aside because, like, I was the one who was too agitated, too angry. I couldn't calm down. Meanwhile, I have these two very terrifying, like, white men um, who are much more agitated. But in that situation, like, I was the problem. And that's always been one of those moments where, like, I have to be afraid at all times. (laughs) Actually, another good indication, and this goes along with stuff um, that Chris has said. So Mariah Carey, I didn't think this conversation would go there, but Mariah Carey wrote a biography. (laughs) Mariah Carey's mixed race. Her mother is white. Um, She's obviously Mariah Carey. Um, Her mother started causing problems at her house. And so the cops were called and immediately Mariah was the aggressor. Like it didn't, Mm. I think the line is, it doesn't matter if you're Mariah fucking Carey. White woman right. still takes more power, still gets more mm-hmm. power. And that's very indicative of, you know, what the case is. I mean, and Mariah Carey, not for nothing, like, is a very um, racially ambiguous woman. Like, it can still happen. Like, no matter what, if you don't fall into that paradigm of whiteness, money ain't going to help you. <laughs> so we've been going for about an hour and a half, which I think from a podcast perspective is probably about as long as I'd want it to go for listeners to stick on through um so with that kind of just to wrap up 
do y'all have any any just kind of closing thoughts about like what your your hopes are what what change you hope either in in your personal space ttrpg space globally um what you hope people take away from like this conversation and going into 2021 i think for me i i hope that people i don't i don't know if any of us has said anything that's been on unheard of before i don't know if any of us are revealing just groundbreaking information but i hope that people hear it and find a way to stop invalidating our experiences whether it's mm. with police whether it's in the ttrpg space um tokenism is real um racism is still painfully real and it's hard to know that there are still people out there that you could share these experiences with and they will somehow twist it around and gaslight you like it's not real or you're hysterical or whatever the case may be. Um, and so my hope is that as these conversations continue and as we continue to try to be allies for one another and advocates for one another, that we start listening and stop telling people that it didn't happen or that it's not real. Cause that's probably the hardest part for me about a lot of this. I can go next. All right. I've been writing notes this whole time. So my takeaway that I want from everybody to to uh, have absorbed from all of this. Um, I'm going to make it a little bit specific to kind of like what I do in my day to day. You know, a podcaster streamer, I spend a lot of time online. I spend a lot of time, a lot of my time with white Americans. Um, so I guess like my takeaway is please stop tokenizing people. Um, please make conscious decisions when you are talking, when you are making actions. Don't just put hashtag BLM in your bio and think that that gives you a pass um, and then go to message people just the most outrageous things. And like then I go to like do my research on you and I see that. And it's just like it's so frustrating. It's so disappointing. Um, and finally, y'all educate yourself. There are podcasts out there that have conversations like this. Um, diversify your tastes if you want information on like canadian news there's a podcast called canada land it is hosted by a white man but they always have wonderful guests on it um and it's a great way to learn about just canada and all the racist shit that happens here um hit me up on twitter if you want some recommendations for like bimpok podcasts that are canadian and american because i think if we can't get our news the traditional way y'all have to go out and find it yourself educate yourself Specifically for TTRPG folks, I want to reiterate the tokenism thing. Um, I also want to reiterate, never, ever use the excuse that you cannot find Black cast members. Because we are here, we're very visible, and you are just lazy, entitled, and racist. More than that, you should make an active effort to diversify your cast, especially if you are someone who runs a TTRPG channel, especially if you're someone that runs games for multiple groups of people. Those groups of people should be diverse and they should not just have one Black person, one Asian person, one Latin person. Like, don't do that. Just don't. It's disgusting. It's obvious. And for some reason, they always make it a marketing point and it is gross. Thirdly, and this is more of a general thing, I want people to listen to the things that have been said here, absorb them. And like everyone else said, stop trying to put down or say that our experiences don't exist. Stop trying to fight people you don't know, talking about their own lived experiences on Twitter, in the comments, like the jackasses you are. 
just stop. You're not only is it in not only is it racist, but it's an insult to any intellect that you possibly contain in your body. And that's all I'll say. Okay. So the so Sefi's Sefi's put me on two things. One, um, whenever you divert, when you whenever you seek out diversity, it doesn't always have to be stuff that people know about either. If you're yeah. diversifying your table in offline games, um, there is a solid chance that you won't have to explain. Uh, a lack of diversity because other people who have seen it and been involved will speak up for you and you don't always need to defend yourself you you don't actually you don't need to defend yourself if you're doing the right thing you will not need to defend yourself if something needs to be said almost assuredly other people will say it for you if they know that you are doing these things and two um when people ask for diversity in tabletop especially, nine times out of ten, people aren't asking you to change whatever the hell you have set up if you're not doing things in a bad way. We're hoping to see you do more things that show that you actually care. If you've been running a show and it's got the same, like, it's it's had your same cast for two years and obviously you're not racist and you actively care, but you do one shots and other games or you're starting a new campaign. We just want to see that you act. Okay. We want to see community and not a click because clicks <laughs> can have very specific racial links, even if it's not intentional, but if you don't play with brown people or Asian people or people of any color or diversity, and then you introduce like a black person, there's a lot of stuff that you might not have ever considered at your table being an issue. You might have never considered that this slavery subplot that you had for goblins or orcs or whatever was a bad thing. And not having diversity at your table means there's, there's going to be a lot of issues that you become okay with. <laughs> and that's not okay. I have one last thing to add. You would I, knew, right I knew it. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we didn't talk about this, but also, stop pretending to be black online for clout. Thank you. Bye. Oh, my stop God. Yeah, thanks. Whew. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing, and that is oh, really yeah. concerning. It's, it's, oh, boy. Good Lord. Okay. Well, the four of you, thank you so much for taking the time um, and, and the emotional energy to, to, to talk about this stuff. I know it's not, this isn't like a, this isn't like playing a game. This is real life stuff and it's heavy and hard. Um, listeners, I, I hope you take away from this. This stuff is more important than, than a fantasy show that I love to run. I, I love the Faith Forge Academy. But when we have stuff in the real world and we have the opportunity to bring that together, with with this fantasy game world that we all love that's where it's real that's that's what's important because because this is about people's real lives um their real skin their real bodies um so so take this wrestle with it um be introspective especially especially if you're white reflect on on the stuff you're hearing because this stuff is real and it takes a lot of personal work this isn't on other people to make you understand it's on it's on you to to look inside yourself see where you have prejudice and bias and racism and where those things affect you and then start making changes and working towards um a, honestly it might sound corny but a better world for all of us and with that uh i think we will uh 
See y'all next time on the Fae Forge Academy. Bye. Bye. The Fae Forge Academy is a proud member of the Fundamentals Podcast Network. For more nerdy content, articles, um, and other great stuff, go to thefandamentals.com. Theme music by Dave Cole of The Four Orbs. If you would like to continue to support the Fae Forge Academy in other ways, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Academy uh, and become a patron. Or we are affiliated with Dice Envy, so you can go to diceenvy.com uh, and use the coupon code Fayforge Academy with no spaces on checkout to get 10% off your order. Um, in addition, we are also affiliated with Loot Crate. So if you go to lootcrate.com uh, and use the checkout code Steven15, uh, at checkout you get 15% off your subscription. Those are all great ways to support us. Uh, don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review um, on iTunes. And have a wonderful day. We will be back with our normal episodes starting next week, including uh, the introduction of our newest PC, Rain, played by Chris, who you heard earlier in this episode. <laughs>